Revelation chapter 8, as it says on the slide there, Revelation chapters 8 through 11 is our assigned passage for today. And um, as one of the things that, that I like to do when we're, we're teaching through the Bible, and you're familiar with this, I like to, to unpack what the scripture says and what it meant to the original audience. Uh, what was the message to them? And um, so sometimes there's, there's challenges that are involved with that. Sometimes it might be a very small passage that might be kind of complex. And so we have to kind of unpack the background and, you know, the, the grammar and the, the sentence and, you know, meanings of words and to, to help make us, you know, understand what that passage might mean. Other passages are challenging in a different way because they're very long passages. It might be a very long narrative passage or a long sermon or something like that. In the book of Acts, there's numerous sermons that are very, very long. Um, occasionally you'll have one that's a, that's challenging in both regards. One, it's very tricky. There's a lot of difficult background things and the passage is really long. Today's passage is one of those passages. As you can see on the hand, on the uh, slide, it's chapters eight, nine, 10, and 11. Um, and I really wanted to look at all of four of those chapters as a whole, because we're looking at the seven trumpets of revelation and all Seven of those trumpets encompass all four of those chapters. Um, but wisdom, it, years of wisdom have now has taught me, you better not do that. You better not do all four. So today's, today's teaching is going to be broken up into two parts. Um, we're going to look at the first couple of trumpets. And then uh, this morning, and then next week, we'll look at kind of the passage as a whole. And so we'll be doing a little bit of study, a little bit of digging, and a little bit of work here to kind of help lay out the background uh, of what's happening in this passage. And, um, and so it's going to feel maybe a little more, you know, kind of busy. We're all over lots of different passages of Scripture, maybe feel a little technical. But we will, uh, if time permits, we'll have a couple of reflections that will hopefully tie this portion together. And then we'll resume uh, next week. Uh, so you with me on that? And with that, uh, let me read the first two chapters of uh, this passage today, and then I will pray. We'll start in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1, and we'll go through the end of chapter 9. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all of the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. 
and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so, to, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then behold, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In the appearance of the locusts, there were horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollonian. The first woe has passed. Behold, two more, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great rivers, river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works of their hands, 
nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to Let's pray. Father God, we come to your word. And as we trust what your word is, that it is powerful to um, it's the power of the gospel for salvation, that your word is um, a sharp double edged sword, that it is useful for teaching us, for correcting us. So, God, we know that we could turn anywhere into your word and it will speak to us today. And so, God, as we've read um, a long and complex passage We pray, God, that you would speak to us through it. That the meditation of our hearts as we reflect on what you have spoken and what John has written uh, would penetrate into our our lives and cause us to, to think differently and to live differently. And so, God, we ask now in these next couple of moments that you would you would speak to us through this passage. And we pray this in Jesus mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So we come to the seven trumpets. And as we were kind of saying last week, um, a very popular way of understanding or answering this question, what's the relationship of all of these visions? We saw the seven seals last week. We have the seven trumpets today. Um, We'll be encountering the, the seven bowls in a couple of other chapters And so a popular way of viewing the relationship of these is to see these kind of all in one line or or kind of as a sequence that all begins in the future. Um, But last week I I was talking kind of, I used the word, the difference between sequence and a stack. That there's another way to to look at the description of these events or these visions is that they're uh, not different visions that are in a sequential order, but that they are... Uh, that are describing different things, but that they're different ways of describing the same broad, uh, large event. So it's more like this one. I don't think I showed this kind of picture. This was kind of my drawing for it last week. Um, So maybe the seven seals kind of encompass everything from when Jesus does take the throne as the lamb from that John sees uh, all the way through kind of church history and the church age and then kind of culminates with Jesus's coming. Each one of these vision kind of culminates. We saw that with the end of the seventh seals at the end of chapter seven, the description uh, when the sixth seal is open, it's, it's very reminiscent of the end of the book when Jesus does finally show up and reign on the earth and judgment has been final. And so I think we'll we'll also see a very similar pattern as we get to the end of the seventh trumpets that we'll look at next week. And you can see the same kind of pattern in the seven histories in chapters 12 through 14 and the seven bowls. And so we have this series or the sequence of sevens. We saw had the letters to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven histories, seven bowls and seven messages of judgment. And then it culminates uh, at the end of the book. And so uh, this is, again, you don't have to uh, you don't have to see the scriptures this way for us to get. I mean, if you you disagree with this view and you kind of think of it as more of a linear thing, it's fine. It still applies either way. But some of the things I think help make sense when we see that this is 
kind of covering um, uh, from John's age, something that John's hearers would have understood that would have applied throughout church history and it applies to us and it also applies to our to our future. So today, um, let me give you kind of the five points that, you know, will help us to break down this passage uh, today. And that is, uh, I want to begin with a little introduction on the trumpets, uh, the two Old Testament backgrounds behind the trumpets, and then we will look at the first six of the trumpet blasts. So uh, intro to the trumpets, two Old Testament backgrounds for the trumpets, and then we'll look at the first four, and uh, well, actually we'll look at the first six, but as we noticed in our reading, the fifth one is associated with the first woe, the sixth trumpet is associated with the second woe, and the seventh trumpet is associated with the third woe. So let's look at the first one, intro to the trumpets. Might be helpful to know um, the background behind what we see in verses two through five. John, then after this moment of silence in heaven, he sees the seven angels who are standing before God. Seven trumpets are given to them. And another angel, it says in verse three, stood at the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So John is uh, using uh, what he sees is uh, a picture of kind of like the heavenly version of the earthly temple or tent of meeting. We saw this in the Leviticus series, if you were here for the Leviticus series. So it might be helpful to, to, for us to visualize a little bit of what John sees, the heavenly version of what uh, many would have been familiar with uh, on, for the earthly tabernacle or the tent of meeting. So here's the, the tent itself. There's the high priest over here out front. Um, this is the courtyard that surrounds this. This is the holy place where you had the the table with the showbread, you had the lampstand, and then right outside of the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, you had the golden altar of incense. Now, what would happen is that the, the instructions were for the high priest to go in and do his duties. When he would go in to make offering sacrifices, one of the things he would have to do is take some coals of fire from the altar that's outside in this courtyard, for the burnt offerings, he would take some of the coals of fire and he put it on the top of that little altar there. And then there was a very special incense mixed with several different spices that are given in uh, the book of Exodus. And they were they said, this is a proprietary scent. <laughs> this is the Lord's scent. Nobody else is supposed to make a scent like this. Um, and so uh, they would make this and so it would make this pleasing aroma, a unique and pleasing aroma that would only signify uh, the worship being offered at the, the, uh, the holy place. And what would happen is the smoke from that incense burning and kind of smoldering on those coals would fill this whole place with smoke. And so you had this association of the Lord's cloud, you know, the pillar of fire uh, at, at night, the pillar of cloud during the day that, you know, conveyed the Lord's presence. Uh, you had this filling with smoke and the Lord's presence was said to kind of be in this hovering over the all the the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So that's the imagery that we need to see here that John sees in heaven. Sees the heavenly version of this tent of meeting. You have this altar of gold. 
you have this angel, and we find out in chapter 11 that this angel's dressed in a very certain way. He's all in white, and he has a golden sash around his chest, which is very reminiscent of what like the high priest would wear with the gold breastplate around the white linen undergarment. And so you have this angel kind of functioning as like a heavenly priest. And in verse 3, he takes the golden censer. He was given much incense to offer, and he puts it on the altar before the throne of God in heaven. And so it's, it's helpful to remember, too, that this uh, tabernacle and temple that was a real structure in Israel's history is actually the replica of what is in heaven. So you might remember from the book of Hebrews, and I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews makes some very interesting observations about the whole story about Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the instructions on how to build this tent of meeting. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. And I'll start reading at the beginning of chapter 8. Now, the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, Jesus being the high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this, this uh, tent of meeting place of the Lord was like the Lord's dwelling place on earth, even though he, his real dwelling place was in the heavens. And so the Ark of the Covenant was kind of pictured as like a kingly throne. You remember how when the Israelites would go and march, they were instructed that the first six tribes were to go out and then they were to carry this in the Ark of the Covenant in the middle and then the last six tribes were to follow behind. When they were to camp around, they were three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. That was a military kind of camp arrangement with the king in the middle of the camp. And so this is kind of throne imagery here. And so he's saying, Jesus is the high priest. He's up at the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. And then also he says this in, in 8 verse 2. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since he were since there were priests who offer guilt, uh, gifts according to the law. But then he says this in verse 5. They, talking about the priests who serve around here, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then he says this, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's citing this from Exodus chapter 25. So that the writer of Hebrews is doing something, I think it's just very clever. He's going, when Moses was asked to give, an, get, when he was asked to come up to the mountain and give an instructions for this dwelling place of God, he was shown the blueprints. And the writer of Hebrews is going, oh, the real one is in heaven. This is kind of just the you know, the, the vacation home, so to speak, that's built exactly like the real one in heaven. Notice what he says in chapter 9, verse 9. I'll, I'll read in verse 8. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So meaning well, the earthly temple is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Notice what it says in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a great high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he went once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So just saying this to remind ourselves that this, what John is seeing is actually the real thing that the earthly tent of meeting and the earthly temple uh, was a copy of. Notice, jump down to verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And that is where John is. And so you, you see some of the same types of furnitures and fixtures, except instead of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the throne and the one seated on the throne. And in front of it, you have this golden altar and you have an angel who's now come and ministering here. So this is this is the, the transitionary moment that we need to see from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. And so here you have this incense that is being offered that fills the, the tabernacle. And then I want you to notice this about the incense. Notice verse 3. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of of the angel. Okay? So, as you had this earthly altar where incense was burned on it and it filled the smoke there, what John sees is an angel doing the same thing and the smoke is rising up in front of the one who is seated on the throne and twice he says that smoke is the prayers of the saints. That smoke is the rising of the prayers of the saints before God in heaven. I think that's a very key thing for us to picture and for us to realize. This is all uh, based on, um, I think the, some of the idea is what David spoke about in Psalm 141 when he prayed, O oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I remember our very one of the first times we started to celebrate Advent, brought the Advent wreath out at home. Do you many of you do this? And we light the candles one one a week. And we were explaining this to the girls when they were really small, uh, the two oldest girls when they were smaller. And um, and I'm using this language about the smoke rising and the incense uh, kind of conveying the prayers of the saints. It's like our prayers rising up to God. It was kind of a visual image that David gives us of, of what our prayers do. Like our prayers go somewhere. They do something. 
And I was explaining this as we were going through our, our Advent wreath thing. And at the very end, I blew out the candles. And when I blew out the candles, Ari goes, there go our pueos. Because the smoke was going up. Friends, when, um, when we pray, the Lord God hears our prayers. When we pray, God responds to the prayers of his people. This is the vision John gets. Silent in heaven for a half an hour. And then he sees what, something he would have been very familiar with. What he would have, uh, would have known was happening uh, throughout his entire lifetime that was being performed in the temple. As sacrifices were being offered. And incense was there. And filling up the smoke of, of the tabernacle. And that was to be the prayers. To symbolize kind of the prayers going up before, before God. Kind of uh, this way of assuring the people that when you saw the smoke, you knew God was listening. And he heard your prayers. God responds to the prayers of his people. God assures us that he does hear and that he does act. And this is related to the appeal that we saw last week in chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here in the fifth seal, you have this, this appeal to God. To hear and to act and respond. And here in a kind of a corresponding way in chapter 8 as we're getting to the trumpets. You have um, this assurance. Your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard. And the judgments that come in these seven trumpets is, is in a way an answer to that, that prayer and those prayers. So that is, that is uh, our, kind of our first reflection for us to remind ourselves today. To kind of think of, get a picture of what it was like for John to see that. To see the real version of which uh, the earthly one he would have been kind of familiar with was just a copy. He still sees the smoke going up conveying the prayers, that, the assurance that God is listening. That he hears. That he hears when you call. So that is the intro to the trumpets. Now I want to look at two Old Testament backgrounds to uh, these trumpets. Remember, the book of Revelation is uh, saturated with the Old Testament allusions and references. Very, very seldom does, does Revelation quote the Old Testament. But hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament are present. And I think it's very helpful for us to know what the background is behind here, because some of the meaning of this, the original Old Testament setting is relevant and present to what it means in John. So here's the two Old Testament, um, to the two Old Testament backgrounds that we need to keep in mind. The first one is the plagues in Egypt during the Exodus. Okay, and this is in Exodus chapter six through twelve. And the wall of Jericho 
in Joshua 5 and 6. These two stories form the background behind these uh, the, the trumpets that we see in the rest of chapter 8. So notice the plagues, and they don't go exactly in order with the, the Exodus plagues, but you'll start to see some similarities here. Notice in verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. This corresponds to the plagues in Exodus chapter 9. With the hail and the fire, right? Notice the second one. The second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. This kind of goes along with the very first of the Exodus plagues, right? Where the Nile River is turned into blood. Here it's the seas that are turned into blood. Notice the fourth one in verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. This corresponds to the darkness that covered the land in Exodus chapter 10. Especially verses 21 through 23. Notice uh, the fifth trumpet in chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And then he opened this key to this bottomless pit from the shaft arose smoke. Verse three, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. And this corresponds to the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10 of the locusts. So you start to see these this, the imagery of these seven trumpets is to convey the judgment that was coming upon Egypt. The judgment that was coming upon Pharaoh for his hard-heartedness in refusing to let God's people go. You had Pharaoh who set himself up as an enemy against the one true God and was seeking to suppress and, and keep in bondage his people. A little bit of that going on in Revelation too, don't we? This is the judgment of God against the nations, the powers and rulers of the nations who are seeking to oppress God's people. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? So that's the first background. And then the second background is the Jericho trumpets. Notice in Joshua, turn with me to Joshua chapter um, 5 and 6. And here in Joshua chapter 5 and 6, they are told to go and conquer this, cross over the Jordan River, and they are to go and conquer this, this land that God had promised to give them. And the first city that they are going to encounter is Jericho. And so you know the story, they send some spies in, uh, a couple of spies run into uh, uh, the woman Rahab, and who kind of protects them, keeps them covered up, they run back. They report back what's going to happen. And so then you have this, um, this command that the Lord has given for them to cross over into the, to the Jordan and to go and conquer Jericho. Notice what it says at the end of chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man standing before him with, his sword, with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? It's good, good information to know, right? You're about ready to go into battle and somebody shows up with a sword drawn. You're wanting to know, okay, are you a good guy or a bad guy? You got the white hat or the black hat, right? I love this answer, by the way. Verse 14. And he said, no. <laughs> and so, are you for us or, or for our adversaries? He says, no. He goes, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And it's this that Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then notice what it says into chapter six. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and out because the people of because of the people of Israel. So they knew the people of Israel were there coming. No one was allowed to come in and out. It's a typical pattern under siege conditions in ancient warfare. And then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. So this seven priests and seven trumpets and this conquering of the Lord's act to win a victory for the people, the people still have to go in and fight, but they don't have to scale the wall because the Lord is going to bring the wall down. And he's going to do this through these seven blasts of the trumpet. The seven trumpet blasts. And so this becomes kind of the, the image that we need to keep in our mind and the message that John has for us and that we're going to see as we go through Revelation is uh, this seven trumpet blasts is supposed to remind the reader that actually God's people are going to conquer because the Lord is going to win the victory, right? And that the evil city will be destroyed when the angel of the Lord comes to, to destroy, okay? As we're going to see in Revelation, this uh, we're going to see another city mentioned. The great Babylon is going to be destroyed by the Lord. So Jericho kind of is a type of, of Babylon, and Babylon is a type of Rome. And so that's the message here. The world systems that are set up against God and against his people, God will destroy. So I think that's the image we need to keep in our mind as we get to these first seven trumpets. The seven trumpet blasts that we see in Revelation. So now let's get to uh, let's get to these these trumpet blasts. Um, let me, well, and let's notice actually let's look at one of them in particular. The fifth trumpet. 
So Revelation chapter 5, you have this fifth trumpet and you have the locusts. We also have some other Old Testament references here. So we saw earlier that this is a reference to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Sometime after this, God says in Deuteronomy that uh, if you follow my covenant, you remain my people. Things will go well for you. But if you don't follow my covenant, there will be some curses that will come upon you. And he says one of those curses will be a, a plague of locusts will come upon you. In Joel chapter two, if you would turn it with me to Joel. The prophet Joel, you see the fulfillment of that warning happening in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Joel's one of the minor prophets right after Hosea. And here, Joel takes this locust imagery from the Exodus, and then the warning God gives in 28 that I will send locusts to come and destroy you, kind of hinting that it's going to be another nation that's going to come and do this. Notice what it says in Joel chapter 1, verse, verse, uh, verse 4. Joel begins in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children, t children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Notice this description of this nation. Its teeth are lion's teeth. Sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation, right? Of what the locusts look like. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped all of the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So the word of the Lord gets to, to Joel here is, you have violated my covenant and now I'm sending judgment upon you. And it's coming in the form of locusts. But those locusts are actually an army. A Babel, the, the Babylonian army. Notice in chapter 2. Here's another use of a trumpet here. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Also remind you of another plague. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. He's describing this coming Babylonian army against Israel because they had become an enemy to their own God. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run as they 
rumbling of chariots. They leap on the top of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So these visions John sees are to point out to him that God and his heavenly army is going to conquer. Like the Israelites conquered Jericho with the blowing of the trumpets. And inversely, when Israel became enemies of their own God, like the Babylonian army was to Israel. That's the image that we are given here in chapters 8 and 9. That God and his heavenly army is coming and has come to inflict judgment on the nations. He seals up his people. He protects his people. But he will, he will come and he will destroy those who are his enemies. And here's one main purpose. And this will be our last reflection uh, before we close. His main purpose in doing this. In inflicting these kinds of things. And notice how this is not complete yet. Notice how all of these judgments are partial. And it's kind of building on the intensity that we saw in the seven seals. Remember when the seven seals were opened, you started to see a quarter of things being destroyed. Right? A quarter of the trees. A quarter of the water. Here you start to see a third of those things being destroyed. And it actually uh, intensifies to all of them as we go later. But here's the main point and the main objective. At the very end of chapter 9, verse 20. After just describing the sixth trumpet, the second woe, these angels, these mounted troops, twice times 10,000 times 10,000. Sounds like Joel 2, doesn't it? Description of the Babylonian army. Fire and sulfur by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke of the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like the serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And then notice what it says here, verse 20 and verse 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. 
Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God's objective, God's objective in all of these trumpet blasts is the same as it was for Joel, is for repentance. God pours out these judgments on the earth with the goal that those who are remain will repent and turn to the Lord. There's a purpose in the calamity. And the purpose is that those who survive and remain are given a chance to repent. Joel's prophecy does something very similar. The verses immediately following what we just read, it says this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. I've just described what it's going to be like. The darkness coming over the hills like a swarm of locusts four times over coming to get you and wipe out your land. And yet, even now, it's not late, he says. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Like the same, the same thing is what John is seeing for us here. This disaster that's being poured out on the earth. And although I keep in mind, the believers haven't been you know, raptured up and out of here. It says that they've been sealed and are protected from this in the midst of this. Okay. So it's in the midst of this. God's saints are sealed. But you have this vision that God is coming to judge and pour out these judgments and Witnessing these judgments, the people should repent. That's the goal. And sadly, it says they do not. John's vision is shocking. It's supposed to be very shocking. Jesus told parables that were shocking. And supposed to be shocking. The point was to provoke people to repentance. And to trust and to return to a gracious God. Great example for this, and this will be how we will end. Is Luke chapter 13. If it is true, as, as I contend, that these visions are not all one event in the future, but the descriptions of these events are describing the story from Jesus' resurrection until his return between his first advent to his second coming. Um, and like you see, there's the same pattern that occurs in each one of these cycles. There's like four, there's a sevenfold cycle. There's four that are kind of quick in succession that are very earthly. Then there's a little pause. And then you have two more uh, cosmic kind of disasters that have a longer description. And then each one, there's a more uh, eschatological or final future one. And they're all intensifying. And if it is correct that these are describing things the way that the Lord has worked throughout history, that these sorts of judgments would have been happening, then these, then when dis judgments like this come or calamities or disasters come, the purpose is for us to turn to repent, to turn to Christ. It's not saying that the judgments are in response to a particular thing. You've done something bad, now God's going to judge you. 
I've heard really bad examples of this before. Hurricane Katrina was a judgment on New Orleans for sinfulness, for instance, right? If you heard things like that, pointing out earthly calamities that would happen and saying that's a particular judgment on that particular thing. I don't think that that's an accurate way to look at it. Jesus tells us it's not. But Jesus doesn't go so swing the pendulum to say uh, every earthly calamity that we would see is an accident. It's a coincidence. It's not part of God's plan. Jesus has a middle ground between the two of them. Notice what it says in Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So in other words, you know, they come to him. There's this tragedy, a massacre that takes place at the hands of an evil, wicked human person. And he answered them, do you think that all of these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans who survived? Because that they suffered in this way? Because do you think it was their particular sin that they had committed something? Therefore, the Lord is judging them for that. And so they were worse sinners than the other sinners of Galilee, which the Lord, right? Like he says, do you think that that's the way God works? Notice what he says. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses earthly calamities that come upon people as a microcosm of like the future calamity of his coming to judge wickedness once and for all. Earthly calamities that you see are not a one-to-one, right? You understand? But, But Jesus is saying, but earthly calamities have nothing to do with God and repentance. He says, no. Whenever you see an earthly calamity, that's cause, that should cause you to pause. That should cause you to reflect. That should cause you to repent because there's a greater calamity to come. Right? Notice he does it again. This time he goes from a wickedness uh, committed at the hands of a wicked person to what looks like a random or natural disaster. Verse four. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Apparently he's referring to event we don't know about other than in this verse. But a large stone tower in the south southern port portion of Jerusalem near the city of David where the pool of Siloam was. Apparently there was a construction project and something happened. A tower fell and it killed 18 people at once. Because what about those 18? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? He says, no. No. They were not singled out for their particular wickedness or sin. That judgment on them did not come. That calamity did not come because of one particular sin. But that calamity does not mean nothing. But... Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that's the 
the vision that's conveyed here for us in Revelation chapters, the purpose behind these pouring out of these, uh, these trumpets, the blowing of these trumpets and this judgments that are coming, supposed to hearken back to God's conquering and bringing over uh, to dealing with the wickedness in the world and that it's building up to his final coming one day. But the goal is for repentance. The objective is for people to repent. So if there's two things we would remember today, when you see an earthly calamity or a disaster today, know that this is this is a call for us to return to Christ. And our first reflection, when you see an earthly calamity and a disaster, and you're asking how long, or Lord, know that he hears your prayers. We'll finish this vision uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. So would you stand with me for closing prayer? Father God, thank you for your your word. That is a very difficult passage to to comprehend. But we thank you for it nonetheless. We're grateful, God, that you do hear the cries of your people. In the same way that you heard the cries of the people of Israel as they were suffering bondage in Egypt, you hear the cries of your people even today. We thank you that you've given us this image of the smoke of the incense going up. As David connected that with his prayers rising before you. And how you even tell us now that in your heavenly throne room. Our prayers are rising up before you now. God, we ask for those who are. Inflicting harm on your people all over this world. We ask how long, Lord, until you will return. When will you come? And make these right. And Lord God, we don't presume that we are innocent of those things. We know that we are guilty of wickedness and sin, but we know that it is because of your son, our savior, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb who is slain, that he has forgiven us of our sins. But nevertheless, God, we ask when, when will you return? Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.